Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good to be with you once again. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here. And we pray, Lord, as we open up your word, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would have these truths transform our life and make us more like you. And so we pray, Father, that you would be glorified now. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The 1960s were one of those epic generations. When you think about it, so much occurred during those 10 years, it's mind-boggling. The summer of love just being one aspect. The Vietnam War, man landing on the moon, which we celebrated just 40 years ago this week. The music, the art, the politics, all of this combined created really quite a fascinating generation. Yet, there is something in the 1960s that many of us either don't know about or disregard. And that is the 1960s saw saw the flowering of the TV game show. Yes, the TV game show. When you think about what occurred during the 1960s in relationship to TV games, it will really boggle your mind. The price is right. And this is pre-Bob Barker, folks. This is pre-Bob Barker. I've Got a Secret, hosted by Steve Allen. Truth or Consequences, interestingly enough, hosted by none other than Bob Barker. Concentration, hosted by Hugh Downs. And then, of course, you can't forget The Dating Game. Oh, yeah. And The Match Game. And for those of you who know how these TV games go... It's pretty much consists of a bunch of questions that you answer, you get some right answers, and you, you progress and you move along. And at the end, you're the final contestant. You usually do this million-dollar question or this really loaded question, and then you walk away the winner, and everyone's happy for you and everything of that nature. Well, the 1960s really pushed the TV game show. So guess what we're going to do tonight? We're going to have our own version of a TV game show. Now, here, here's the rules. I'm going to show you some slides on the screen. You simply just have to yell out who you think the person is, and that's your point. And then we're going to progress through these folks, and then there will be a final question at the end. Of course, those who are listening on the radio won't be able to see what is going on the screen. So I'll describe a little bit for them who this person is. So first slide, please. This person, of course, was a painter. Leonardo da Vinci. Well, some people are into this. Leonardo. They were, like pushing their neighbor and such. Whew. Okay. Next contestant also was a painter, sculptor, poet, responsible for the Sistine Chapel. Michael... Michelangelo. Very, very good. Getting a little harder here now. This particular person was the... Wow. This particular person was the ruler of England and known for beating the Spanish Armada. Okay, I heard it. Queen Elizabeth of England. Yes, that's what she looked like. Our next contestant was a famous scientist... 
Apple dropped on his head. Isaac Newton. Very, very good. Okay. A little more difficult. You guys think you're doing pretty good. Let's, let's throw one out to mix it up a little bit for you. This person, this female, is an author. And she wrote Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen. Very good. Jane Austen. Okay. Even a little more interesting. Next slide, please. This person was a teacher, an author. No, not Anne Frank. She was also deaf and blind. (laughs) Helen Keller. Oh, yeah. There's Helen Keller. Next slide. Don't be scared of this one. Yeah. She was a school teacher, abolitionist, and women's right advocate. She's also on the dollar coin. Susan B. Anthony. I heard someone say it right there at first, so he would be the winner. All right. Getting a little more contemporary. This gentleman is a Christian author, pastor, and he was voted one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential Christians of the past 100 years. John Stott. That is John Stott. You've heard Pastor Skip reference this guy on a regular basis. Very influential gentleman. It's kind of like the Billy Graham of England. That's John Stott. And our last one, I think everyone's going to get right off because she's in the news all the time. Secretary of State, former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. Okay, you guys did great in this TV game show. Now, here's the million-dollar question. What do they all have in common? That's right. They were all single. And in the case of Condoleezza Rice, yet to be married, you know, she still has some, some time there. And so if you answered, <laughs> they're all single, you're exactly right, and you are the winner. And as has been suggested, we are going to talk about singleness this evening. And you know, the word single really gets a lot of different responses from people. There are some folks, when they hear the word single, they, they freak out. And then there's other people, when they hear the word single, they go, oh, pure elation. I'm so glad. And you get these types of responses based upon how people view the single life. There are those people who are bachelors or bachelorettes for life. <laughs> you married folks. <laughs> You guys, you're tied at the hip. You're always having to look out for one another. You can't go do what you want. You're always having to provide for that other person. You know, I'm going to be a bachelor or a bachelorette for life. And then you have those other folks who are like this. I'm so bummed. I'm, I'm a single person. And um, life is just not happy for me. I, I'm looking for my soulmate. Excuse me for a moment. And, and, and they're really down when they hear the word single. And I think that's because in the world, they give us an interesting definition of what it means to be a single individual. According to Webster's Dictionary, a single person is one, a person who is not married or an unmarried person, and two, one who is unaccompanied by others. And when you look at this definition, it seems pretty depressing. Not married, uh, and unaccompanied by others. That sounds pretty lonely. But I want to point out to you that this definition, at least for the Christian, is really not an accurate description of who we are. 
And there are two major reasons in that definition why this is an incorrect definition for the Christian. Number one, the whole idea of not being married is incorrect for the Christian is because ultimately we are married. We are part of the body of Christ. And the Bible is crystal clear that the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. We belong to our beloved. So as a Christian, as one who has the Spirit of God living inside of you, you are, in a sense, spiritually married to the Lord himself. So the whole idea of being unmarried, though to a human being it's true, for a single person we are married. That's why our nuns who are sisters say they're married to Christ. But the other part of that definition is also incorrect, where it says unaccompanied by others. Because again, for the Christian, we are not unaccompanied. The moment you became a Christian, in that very nanosecond, the Holy Spirit came to reside in your life. And He is with you. He's promised to be with you, to sustain you, to guide and direct you. So folks, As Christians, we are not unaccompanied through this life. We have the greatest company imaginable to anyone out there. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. And I think part of the reason why people are so confused about this whole concept of singleness is because we buy into the world's definition. And we start to gloat. Oh, I'm so lonely. Oh, I'm unaccompanied. There aren't other people around me. I don't have my soulmate. But the reality is the Bible paints a different picture of what singleness is. And that is our task this evening. We're going to look at two major sections of Scripture outlining what singleness is. The first is given by the Lord Himself, Jesus. And then we're going to turn what, uh, to what Paul has to say about the single life. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And before we get into the actual texts that deal with singleness, I'm going to point out four observations based upon this scenario. Four observations. But here in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 10 through 12, it says this, His disciples said to him, that is Jesus, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, All cannot accept the saying, but only those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. The first thing I want you to notice is the larger context of what Jesus gives in his teaching here. If you just peruse up to the beginning of chapter 19, you notice that Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce. Ultimately, he is talking about relationships. He's cornered, if you will, by some Pharisees who approach him and throw out trick questions about the whole issue of divorce. And we're going to be talking about marriage and divorce in this series, Beyond the Summer of Love. But you need to take note that Jesus, in the midst of talking about marriage and divorce, moves to what it means to be single. And what that tells us is that the issues of marriage 
and divorce and relationships have always played an important role in Christians' lives, in humanity. Since the beginning of time, Adam and Eve, there have been relational problems. And so Jesus is giving us God's view of what to do in relationship to our relationships here. And so we should pay special heed when Jesus talks about singleness. The second thing I want you to notice is what Jesus does not say. What Jesus does not say in these three verses is this. Singleness is bad. Jesus does not say singleness is bad. Jesus actually goes on to give credence for someone who is single. But that's an important thing to note. Jesus is not a matchmaker. He's not going, you know, Mary Magdalene, my friend Bartholomew over there, (laughs) you know, it might be good, you never know. He, he didn't go up to Peter and say, Peter, marry a tree, marry a rock, but just for goodness sakes, get married, my friend. You know, that, that wasn't part of his gig. That wasn't part of his thing. And you go, well, yeah, so what? Well, if you understand it historically, what Jesus was doing was absolutely radical. Absolutely radical. Just like Jesus elevated the place and position of women during his day and age, Jesus also elevated and uplifted the role of a single individual. Why? Because in Jesus' day and age, according to the Jewish tradition, singleness was frowned upon. Only one who was married received the full blessing of God. And furthermore, there were some Jewish sects that taught that if you were not married you would have difficulty entering heaven. So then along comes this 33-year-old guy basically saying, no, singles are awesome. Singles are great. And he defines for us the reasons for singleness. So it's very important to note what Jesus does not say. The third observation is, I want you to focus in on the word Jesus uses for a single person or a celibate person. And that word is eunuch. So you're probably asking yourself, well, what in the world is a eunuch? Well, biblically speaking, there are two major definitions for a eunuch. The first one is a court officer or a person who assisted the king. And the second definition is a, sorry guys, a castrated male. And largely in Scripture, we find that those two terms are used simultaneously. Someone who helped the king, the ruler, and they were a castrated individual. According to ancient Jewish tradition, the uh, the Babylonian Talmud, they recognized two classes of eunuchs or two classes of celibate individuals. Those who were born naturally celibate, meaning there was a birth infirmity. And secondly, those that were man-made eunuchs, or man-made, they were castrated. And you go, well, that that doesn't sound very pleasant, you know, this whole castration, especially guys going, I don't really like that whole thing. But it was an ancient practice in the Middle East where men were castrated, made celibate to support and follow the king and not be... Uh, taken away 
by the ladies and so on and so forth. It's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, the eunuchs, these celibate, these single individuals, actually play a pretty important role in many things. In Jeremiah 34, it describes that these single individuals, these celibates, were men of rank, meaning they had high position in the government. In 1 Kings, we learned that they were important messengers. So when the king wanted to convey something important, he sent a single celibate guy. And then 2 Kings, we find that these single individuals were warriors. They were actually some of the people on the front lines that were taken into captivity first by the Babylonians and imprisoned. So they were used and they were held in high esteem in many of the courts in ancient Israel. So we need to take note of that particular word, why Jesus used it. And the fourth observation I want you to note is found in verse 11 here of chapter 19. Listen to this. But he said to them, that's Jesus, all cannot accept this saying. That is the saying about being single. And that word accept there, interesting enough, is can't handle it. It it really means to make room for. There are a lot of people who are listening to Jesus here and says, you can't make room for this. You can't handle this. This is not for you, is what he's saying. Why? Because he finishes up his thought in the next section. He says, but only those to whom it has been given. So the first thing that you need to understand about Jesus' teaching on singleness is that it is not for everyone. Jesus is not calling everyone to a life of singleness. They can't handle it. It's not for them. It's not what God has called them to do. But secondly, notice the second part of that phrase, that singleness is given to people as a gift. And thereby we see Jesus elevating the role of a single person in his society. Again, a radical thing for him to be doing. The role of a single person in God's kingdom is a very important role, as we're about to see. Singleness is a gift to some, not a command for all, but it's a strong gift. It's a strong gifting. So now we've looked at these four observations regarding this. Let's look at specifically what Jesus says about the role of singleness or why we are single. And you'll notice there are three things. Nature, man, and God. The three elements of why people can be single are nature, man, and God. And we find this in verse 12. So look at chapter 19, verse 12. The first, nature. For there are eunuchs or celibates or single people who were born thus from their mother's womb. So the first type of single person is something that is really beyond their control. They were born in a particular fashion, maybe with some physical infirmities or some mental infirmities that does not allow them to become married. Now, hear me clearly. What Jesus is not saying is this. If you have a physical or mental infirmity, you cannot become married. That is not what Jesus is saying. What he's doing, though, is giving a principle for why some people may become single. Nature, the natural course of events. People are born with some certain infirmities that does not allow them to become a married individual. 
The second reason is found in the second part of verse 12, and it says this. Others, um, there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And again, this refers to the ancient practice specifically of castration. But principally, we could apply this to anything that mankind foists upon another human being. Let's take something as simple as war. 20-year-old kid signs up in the Marines. He goes off to Iraq, Afghanistan, and the reality is he's blown up. Praise the Lord, he lives, but he comes back. And he's physically or mentally incapable. It's something that man has done to him. Maybe someone is driving along the road and they didn't see the train coming and they cross the track and the train hits them and they're paralyzed from the neck down and they're not mentally capable to function maybe in the proper uh, setting of what we would consider proper. That person may not be capable of marriage based upon what man did. Not what nature did. Not because they were born that way. Because they were uh, in an accident. Another example is maybe through circumstances, an individual may feel called not to get married to take care of an ailing parent or to watch over brothers and sisters because family members died. And that individual feels it is my responsibility to care for this individual. Again, something that man has foisted upon them. But let me say this again. Just because someone has outside responsibilities or or caring for someone else or children does not mean ultimately that person can't get married. It's not what Jesus is saying. Again, he's just giving some examples of why someone may be a single individual. And and just case an example, my first church assignment was a little church in California. It was a brethren church. And there was a lady, she was 75 years old, and her name was Dorothy Bollinger. She since went to be with the Lord. But Dorothy Bollinger was a firecracker. I mean, she was one of those 75-year-old ladies that were just always going, always involved in church. Such a joy, such a blessing. And just the neatest lady, but she never got married. And she would sometimes sit down with me and explain why she didn't get married. She goes, Brian... I always felt like I wanted to get married, but you see, I had to take care of my father. And my father was fairly protective, and I never wanted to get married until he died. And then she said, by the time he died, I felt I was too old. And she never got married until that day she walked in, big eyes, sparkle in her her eye, a smile on her face. 75-year-old Dorothy Bollinger comes up to me and says, Brian, guess what? What, Dorothy? You going to invite me over for dinner? No, I'm getting married. <laughs> 75 years old. She gets married. And the point being is just because you're single now does not mean that later on God may not have another season for you. But going back to the text... Jesus is saying there are circumstances in life where singleness is caused by man. And the third form of singleness, as outlined by Jesus, is still in verse 12 here. And here he says, And there are eunuchs, or single or celibates, 
who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he goes, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So the third reason for singleness, according to Jesus, is that individual, not because of nature, not because of something man has done to them, but because they have chosen a volition of their own will, a calling upon their life to remain single for the glory of God's kingdom. And they have felt, based upon God's Spirit impressing upon their life, that they will be more productive as a single individual for God's kingdom than if they were a married individual. So the third type of single person is single Because they want to serve the Lord in the fullest capacity. And the Lord has equipped them to do it. Because look at what Jesus says. He who is able to accept it. He who is able to handle it. He who is called for it. Let him accept it. So Jesus is giving clear, clear cut lines for the person who is called spiritually to be single. In summary, Jesus is basically saying there are events beyond our control, either man or nature, that can cause us to be single. Or there's the human volition, our own will by a call and gifting of God to remain single for God's glory and for his kingdom. That is how Jesus summarizes what singleness is. So now let's turn to what Paul has to say about the single life. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And while you're turning there, you'll notice that Paul, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is doing what Jesus did in chapter 19 of Matthew. He's talking about relationships. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about divorce. He's talking about all the types of human relationships, slavery, and everything else that was going on He is addressing in chapter 7. And what's interesting is Paul, like Jesus, had a variety of things to clarify what true singleness and true marriage and true relationships are. Because like Jesus had to contend with what people thought in his day regarding marriage and singleness, Paul too had to confront those same attitudes But even more so, because Paul was talking not only to a Jewish mindset, he was also talking to a Gentile mindset. And the Gentiles had his warped understanding of what singleness and marriage is as the Jews did. In some quarters of Gentile thought, they felt that being single was an abomination, That it was absolutely the lowest form of human relationships. So some of these Gentiles, if they found you were single, it would almost be like you became a second, third class citizen. Yet, on the other hand, in some Gentile circles, there were individuals who were teaching that singleness is the highest form of human relationship. Because then you're given over to thinking wonderful thoughts and studying philosophy and not having to deal with those you know, gross men or gross women. You could just be pure in your thoughts. And so Paul not only had to confront the distorted Jewish thoughts regarding singleness and marriage, he also had to take a look and present a biblical response to the Gentile. 
And so in the midst of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as Paul is discussing the principles of marriage and principles of divorce and all these different relational principles, he stops smack dab in the middle and addresses something that I think everyone needs to hear. Marriage, people who are married and those who are in a single life. He really cuts all this relationship talk out and he focuses in on the heart of what our attitude is to be regarding singleness or marriage or any human relation station. Listen to this beginning in verse 17 of chapter 7. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches... Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you could be made free, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, who is called while free is Christ's slave. While you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. What Paul outlines for us, and I'm reiterating it, is the heart of the matter in any type of relationship. So this just isn't for single people. This is for all of us in any type of relationship. And I want to point out a few preliminary considerations or key principles that we could glean as our attitude towards any relationship, including singleness. The first is found in verse 17. But God has distributed to each one as the Lord has called each one. We need to stop for a moment and take stock of our life And ask ourselves, Lord, what is it you have called me to do in my relationships? Am I called to be married? Am I called for a single life? We have to recognize that God has called individuals in unique and specific ways. Like I pointed out, not everyone is called to be married. Not everyone is called to be single. So we have to understand And again, recognize that God has distributed each person's calling. Think of what Paul's going to write about later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the body of Christ. If I look out this congregation here, there's a lot of us. And guaranteed, not everyone has the same calling. Not everyone has the same position. God wouldn't want it that way. He would want each person to have their specific gifts so that they could act as a working, healthy body. And so too in our relationships. So we have to understand that God has called some of us to a life of singleness based upon how he has distributed it. And that word called there in verse 17 simply means to bid or bring forth. God has bidded in your life for something and now he's providing for you to bring it forth. To use that gifting for his glory and for the empowerment of of the body of Christ. Verse 17. The second preliminary uh, consideration, key principle, is at the end of verse 17. 
But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And I love when Paul uses that word walk. That word actually means, in the Greek, peripateo. And it simply means to be preoccupied with it. So once we understand that God has distributed to each one of you certain gifts, and not only that, distributed to each one of you certain relationships in this life, Paul is saying, now walk in accordance with that calling. If God has called you to be married, walk, be preoccupied, be attuned and attentive to what it means to be a married person. If God has called you to a life of singleness, be attuned and attentive and walk, be occupied with that particular relationship. Paul is calling us to walk in accordance to what God has called us to do. Thirdly, in this preliminary considerations, these key principles, is verse 19. In verse 19 it says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Ultimately, it's not about marriage. It's not about singleness. It's not about, am I a slave to my boss? What it is, is are we walking in obedience to what God has called us to do? We recognize that he's distributed, he's given us gifts. He's told us we're to walk in the way he's given us. And the question we need to ask ourselves, am I obeying? Am I walking according to his commandments? Are his words and his testament an important part of my life? Have they taken root? Am I obeying him? This is really what the Lord wants out of us. He's given us different spheres in our relationship, but the heart of the matter is this. Are you obeying him? Because as Jesus tells us, married folks, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. We don't know ultimately what type of relationship there is going to be, but we know there's not going to be marriage. Jesus tells us himself. But what we do know is that obedience and listening and following the Lord will be a part of our existence in heaven. Proclaiming his holiness and his greatness and how magnificent he is will be a part of our life in heaven. And it's a part of our life on earth. So Paul is getting to the heart of the matter in that it's not about singleness or marriage, it's about following his commandments. And then finally, in the preliminary considerations, these key principles, is verse 24. And here, Paul says, Brethren, let each each one of you remain with God in the state in which he was called. So once we understand that God has distributed, he's given each of us a call, once we understand that we're to walk in accordance with what he's given us, once we understand that the heart of the matter is to be obedient, to listen, to follow him, we will then understand that we need to stay in that calling the Lord has ultimately given us in an ultimate sense. And you know what? Sometimes we may not know the ultimate calling until the end of our life. Maybe your whole life, you don't know you're going back and forth. Am I single? Am I supposed to be married? I'm not sure. Maybe you won't know until the day you enter heaven 
And if you weren't married, maybe God's will for you was to be single. But in your singleness, you're to walk and to obey and remain in that until the Lord tells you to do otherwise. Now, with that, this does not mean that that blessed teenager, when they went forward at a missions conference to take this call of bringing the gospel, the good news, out to the world. I'm just going to dedicate myself to you, Lord. I'm going to be married to you. And she's so passionate. And when she graduates from high school, she goes to Bible college, and then she jumps on the mission field. Lord, I'm just married to you. Nothing's going to stand in my way until Mr. Wright comes along. And she goes, oh, He's not bad looking. He's a missionary too. And he loves the Lord. I, and she starts to get confused. Well, I promised that I was married to the Lord. Does that mean I can't get married to this guy? I can't enter a relationship? And my answer to that is not necessarily. What I would tell that person is that she needs to pray. She needs to seek counsel from godly friends. She needs to seek God's word as to what she should do. And then make an action. But just because someone is single now does not mean that they may not be married later. Something I have found in my own life, God works through seasons. I may be in a season now, but 20 years from now, I may be in a completely different season. So again, Paul is not teaching that your singleness now may not lead to marriage later. What he's saying is you need to be faithful to your singleness now. You need to walk in accordance with what God has distributed to you now. You need to be faithful to his word and to his calling in your life now. You with me on that? That is what Paul is saying. And these are so important principles for us to consider because they really outline for us now what Paul has to actually say about singleness. And that is found in verses 32 and 33. So these are some key considerations to think through regarding singleness. And they say this, 32 of chapter 7. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And then, down in verse 38, Paul says, So then he who does not give her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. So what Paul is doing here is giving us very practical advice. And folks, if you're married, you resonate with this. And folks, if you're single, you know that this is true. Paul gives very practical advice regarding our relationships and specifically about marriage and singleness. And that is this. If you're married, you will be more concerned about the things of this world. I'm a living example. I'm a dad. I'm a, I'm a husband. I've got three kids. And I'm concerned about them. I, oh, food, water, shelter, school, clothing, this, get them to this event. Get them to that event. Make sure they're provided for. Make sure they get all this. I'm very wrapped up in my family life, which I think we should be as married individuals. But on the other hand, a single person is not as inclined 
towards the things of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand if you're single, you have to put a roof over your head. You have to put food on your plate. But there's a freedom there that a married person may not have because I'm considered and considering the other individual. Whereas a single person may not have that consideration. So Paul just breaks it down very simply. If you're to get married, just know you're going to be considered or concerned with the things of this world. If you remain single, the world's grip is going to be less on you. And then he says something interesting in verse 38. And it's this. I'll read it again. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Interesting. A lot of people have taken this statement from Paul and says, well, see, Paul's advocating singleness. Not necessarily. Because when you understand what that word does better means, it gives you a clearer picture of Paul's intent. The word there means has a greater advantage. So what Paul is saying, listen to it again, but he who does not give to marriage has a greater advantage. A greater advantage for what? a greater advantage to serve God without the cares of this world. That is what Paul's saying. Very, very practical advice. So true, true, Paul gives us the heart of the matter that we need to know and discern that God's given us different gifts. We need to recognize we're to walk in these gifts for now. We need to recognize the heart of the matter as we abide and follow in his commandments and then walk in those in accordance with what he's given us. But these practical things are priceless. When you're thinking through singleness, you need to ask yourself, am I ready to be that much more connected to the world? Am I ready to be that much more concerned with the cares of this world? Or do I want to open myself up to the freedom in Christ to be called at any moment to do what he has beckoned me to do? And Paul says it clearly, you have the greater advantage for those who are single, to do that. And it's a beautiful place to be in. And some of you out there are looking at me going, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You're married, got kids. I've been single my whole life. What do you know about singleness? What do you know about loneliness? And let me tell you, I'll give you that much. But I'm going to close with this, that there's an individual who I showed you on the screen, John Stott, who at 93 years old this year has remained single his whole life. And he's the first to tell you, not because he didn't think about marriage or even at times desire marriage, but he realized through the course of his life that God had called him to a single life. And I want you to listen to him as a man who has spent almost a hundred years as a single individual and gleaned from him. Listen to some points he makes about a single life. The gift of singleness is more a vocation, a calling, if you will, than empowerment. Although, to be sure, God is faithful in supporting, he calls. So John Stott is saying, you are called to it and God is faithful to lead you and support you and abide with you and accompany you through the life of singleness. He will equip you accordingly. Secondly, John Stott says, 
If marriage is good, singleness is also good. It is an example of the balance we find in Scripture. That although Genesis 2.18 indicates that it's good to be married, what we learn from Corinthians 7, what we just read, is that it's good to be single. So there's a balance in life. One is not better than the other. So folks, don't think singleness is the bottom of the barrel. It's not. We're on equal footing. We're on equal standing. We stand hand in hand as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of our relationships here on earth. It's about abiding and fulfilling what God has called us to do in this life. Third point John Stott makes about singleness. So whether we are single or married, we need to receive our situation from God as his own special grace and a gift given to us. And for those of you who are single, that's a precious word. It's a precious word. It's a gift to you. Doesn't seem like a gift. Seems like a curse, singleness. But step back from it. Get away from the world's definition. Look at what Paul has outlined for us in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a gift. It's a gift for you to impact the world in a greater manner, taking greater advantage of what the Lord has given you. It's a gift. And fourth, I love this. When asked what advice he would give to a single person, listen to what John Stott says. First, don't be in too great a hurry to get married. Pray daily that God will guide you to your life partner or show you if he wants you to remain single. Sadly, many in our world today, single individuals, just go to events, places, so they can find a spouse. What if you back up a little, you step back, and you approach all the relationships in life from a different vantage point? I'm not going out there to find my spouse. I'm going out there to represent the Lord. I'm going out there to be his ambassador. I'm going out there to reflect him. To take greater advantage of my freedom, of not being as involved in this world. And I'm going to use that for the call of Christ. What if you approach relationships with that? Rather than walking up to the other single male and female and thinking, hmm, I wonder if they'd make a good spouse. Ask yourself, I wonder how I could influence them for the cause of Christ. I wonder if that person is a Christian. And if not, I wonder if my life could lead them to the Lord. Ask yourself stuff like that. Because then our relationships will be transformed. But I love what John Stott says. Don't be in too great a hurry to get married. But pray that God would guide you. And then secondly, he says, lead a normal social life. Develop many friendships, he says. Great advice. If you're single and a married couple calls you up, hey, Robert, why don't you come out? Man, we're getting together. We're having some fun. No, you go ahead, brother. I'm just single. I'm just going to sit here. 
or, or, hey, Joan, we're, we're going out to see a movie tonight. Why don't you come with my wife and my kids? Oh, no, you guys go ahead. You're the married ones. You guys always have all the fun. I'm just going to remain here and be a spinster. <clears throat> no, that's not the type of attitude you're to have. You're to embrace life. Embrace the different stations people are in. Knowing that maybe one day you may be called out of that. But again, taking Paul's advice, walk in that relationship. Walk in that according to the station you're at in your life at this moment. Be faithful to that calling. Make different friendships. You know, going back to John Stott, it's interesting. As I pointed out, he was one of Time Magazine's most hundred fluential Christians of the past hundred years. And you think, well, this single guy, you know, did he have lots of kids? No, but he traveled and he made an enormous amount of friends. And he influenced people as far as Africa and India, even in Antarctica. He even went to the Eskimos to teach the Bible. That's the type of freedom this man had. And that is why he had such an amazing impact. And not only did he make lots of friends, He found wonderful hobbies. Something a lot of people don't know about John Stott is that he is an amateur ornithologist. He's an expert in birds. Not only would he travel around meeting new people and influencing people for the cause of Christ, while he was there, he would have people give him tours of the bird sanctuaries. And he preoccupied himself not only with friendships, but with things to do. So what we're getting from John Stott is amazing a life full of advice. And then thirdly, he says, if God calls you to singleness, don't fight it. Remember the key text. Each person has his or her own gift according to God's grace. I love that. If God has called you to a life of singleness, don't fight it. Embrace it. Why? Because you have that greater advantage to impact the world for what ultimately matters. It's not marriage that matters. It's not being single that matters. It's the kingdom that matters. It's the cause of Christ and bringing people into that fold so that you will spend eternity not only with the creator of heaven and earth, but with God's people from all ages and ages to come. That is what's important. And folks... I conclude with this. As bad as singleness seems to some, physical singleness, not being with a spouse or being with a person, let me tell you the reality. There's even a greater predicament for singleness. And that's if you're spiritually single. If you have not been married, so to say, to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not received him as your Lord and Savior, folks, then that is a catastrophe. That is a life of singleness you do not want. Because then the definition that the world has foisted upon you is true. Then you are unaccompanied through this life. Then you are without other people in help. You are a spiritual loner. But the moment you turn your life over to Christ, and as I said, the Holy Spirit comes in, you're made a new creation. You're born again. You're no longer single. You have 
the spiritual mate of your soul, the Lord. And he will guide you. And he will accompany you. And folks, that is what life is about. So you don't have to be single for life. Because ultimately, for the Christian, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as being single for life. We have a Lord and a Savior who so desperately loves you. He so desperately wants to get to know you. And he so desperately calls out for that relationship on a day-to-day basis for the Christian. Singleness is not for life. We are married and we can celebrate the Savior of our soul, our beloved, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for your word, for its exhortation, for its comfort, for its teaching. And now, Lord, as we understand the reasons for singleness, nature, man, and the calling upon our life, and as we learn from Paul, the heart of the message, Lord, understanding that you've distributed to individuals differently, that we're to walk in accordance with that calling. And the heart of the matter, Lord, is obedience to what you have commanded us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this evening. But most importantly, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who has not been married to you, has not turned their life over to you, I pray in the quietness of this moment, in the quietness of their heart, that you would speak, Lord that you would talk to them in that still, small voice, that you would just say, I love you. You're not alone. You're not unaccompanied. I'm with you for all eternity. And Lord, let that person turn their life over to you now. And Lord, that they could rejoice that they have the lover of their soul with them forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.